Welcome to Boots Off Log On, a podcast where we talk all things farm business. A show about the business of farming, bringing you insights and wisdom from the leaders in farm business, helping you minimise risk and maximise return on all your hard work. I'm David and I'll be your host for the show. Welcome again, everybody. Today we're talking to Malcolm Gillott about carbon farming. Malcolm is the WA Business Development Manager for Greencollar, an environmental markets investor. We cover what is carbon farming, why you as a farmer should start educating yourself about it, where it may fit into your farming business, and its impact as another possible source of farm income. It's a fascinating, no BS discussion with Malcolm about the future of carbon farming without any political or ideological agenda. After talking with Malcolm, carbon farming feels very similar to the start of the precision farming and no-till movement. Starting with a long incubation period over the last 10 years, it's now moving towards the mainstream and may take off to become a new normal in the future. This is a special podcast I'm hosting with Kelly Pierce, the CEO of the Facey Group, a highly innovative and accomplished long-term grower group based in Wickerpen, Western Australia. It's great having Kelly hosting this with me as she brings a great perspective on the subject as both a farmer herself and as the CEO of a grower group. I hope you learn as much as we did and enjoy this conversation. Now over to Malcolm. So I suppose the obvious question, Malcolm, is we all think we know carbon and we it's on the news all the time. So can you really just explain to us all um, what is carbon farming and why should we actually care? You've probably taken a subject I could spend 10, 15 hours talking and still um, not enlighten anyone. Ultimately, carbon farming, for my personal opinion, and trying to put it back to landholders or growers, it ultimately comes down to the management decisions you make on your property, whether it's in the short, medium to long term to basically help the ability to sequester carbon, whether that's below ground in the soil or above ground in uh, plantings or vegetation above. So ultimately, my way of looking at carbon farming is what management decisions you make on your property to help increase carbon levels. And ultimately, it's like anything you grow on your property, whether it's sheep, cattle, wool, grain, whatever it may be, ultimately you're making decisions to basically grow and farm a product that's then tradable to the market. So carbon farming is no different. It just takes that more basic seismic mind shift to realise, regardless of your politics, whether you're way to the right or way to the left or somewhere in the middle, ultimately carbon farming is about uh, growing a commodity that can be traded. Yeah, great. So why is the time now for uh, farmers to start seriously considering carbon farming as, a, I assume, an income stream or a, an, another thing to add to their enterprise mix? Yeah, it's a really good question. But the main thing for me and probably everyone within the industry is it's not going anywhere. It is a global situation and it's not flash in the pan. So whether you see it as a commercial or potential money-making opportunity, whether you see it purely as retaining market access to whether down the track businesses have to prove they're carbon neutral or whether you see a more holistic picture to whether you see the commercial opportunity market access, but also basically the benefits you can bring to the environment on your property as well. There's a lot of reasons why growers should be looking at this space at the moment. And by that, I don't mean rushing into this space, but also mainly about becoming aware of it, getting knowledge from basically multiple sources, 
and educating yourself. So it's like anything with your property. You want to be educated before you make decisions at the end of the day. Let's go back a bit, Malcolm. So um, you are the development manager for Green Collar. Can you explain what Green Collar is and where does it fit? There's obviously other uh, businesses in this field and what are those businesses? So what industry is Green Collar part of? Absolutely. It's a good question. We originally founded in 2008 and, look, we try to keep a relatively low profile because um, we are far and away the biggest carbon provider in, um, in the industry in Australia. We, um, to date, have generated over 50% of the ACUs or Australian carbon credit units um, back within the industry. So, yeah, look, we don't like to blow a trumpet, but we are the dominant player in this industry. And because of that, it means we have, for once you're within the carbon industry, Green Collar has a high profile. We work in a lot of different spaces within the carbon industry and probably to backtrack even further, even though the lion's share of what we do is around carbon, we have four streams to the business, carbon being one of the main ones. We're also strongly in the biodiversity space. We also have a credit system up and running for water quality um, at the moment on the Great Barrier Reef where growers make management changes to limit runoff and also their nitrogen levels in their runoff. And we have basically uh, large businesses willing to reward them for that. And it's our own scheme up and running and is going well. And we're also in the plastic space as well. So to your original question, yeah, we're dominant player in the space. We keep a low profile. And there's a lot more to us than just carbon. Um, for people listening to the podcast today, in WA, we've got a strong focus on the pastoral estate, so what they call human-induced regeneration. And we also have a focus on soil carbon and also environmental planning. So in a nutshell, um, there's a lot to us. We've been around for a long time. And, yeah, we're, we're very interested in what WA has to offer to the business and vice versa. Is there um, plans? You know, there's obviously a strong focus in the pastoral space at the moment and a lot of our listeners are in the broad acre space and in into the, um, like you said, down south into the livestock space. So is there plans in the future uh, or opportunities in the future for broad acre players or uh, mixed farming players? And if not from you, is there other, uh, other players in the industry who specialise in that space? Yeah, there certainly is. Basically, the largest soil carbon provider in Australia is a business known as AgriProve, and yeah, we're able to talk about it publicly now. Green Collar has uh, taken a position within AgriProve. So we, we, for our soil carbon projects, we uh, recommend AgriProve as our provider here in WA. So yeah, if you do come to talk to Green Collar, you'll, you'll deal with myself and others within the business, and we don't simply, inverted commas, handball across to AgriProve and never speak to you again. But, yeah, there, there is that relationship there, which is good because AgriProve are really strong in that soil carbon space and have, have a lot of experience. To your question about opportunities, the main two, what basically backtracking there is a lot of acronyms in the carbon industry. One of them is what we refer to as methods or methodologies. They're basically uh, systems that the clean energy regulator, which is a statutory body from the federal government, they administer and oversee. Um, the other acronym acronym is the ERF, which is the Emissions Reduction Fund. You'll hear a lot of acronyms in this industry. Uh, pretty much those methods in soil carbon and also environmental plantings, they're the main two in a broad acre sense that are applicable at the moment. And no doubt that will change into the future as other methodologies uh, come on stream over the next few years that will be definitely applicable to broad acre growers. But at the moment, the main two where I sit and where Green Collar sit is soil carbon and environmental plantings being the big opportunity for broad acre growers. 
to explain it within the context of a broadacre industry. So I'm a, I'm a I'm a wheat and sheep farmer, and I'm going okay. Do I get into this or not? So we we understand the wheat industry, and we understand the livestock industry, and the wool industry. We know who is the grower, we know who the buyer is, we know understand the liquidity of that market, and you know we can look at indices all the time. So can you explain? The carbon industry, who's the buyer, who's the seller, you know, what? how do you, how do you explain this market? And, and, and as a farmer, what's my role in the market? And so how does it work? Really important. Um, I basically rattled a few acronyms before and someone listening on the podcast might have thrown their hands up and said, what are they? Ultimately, the basically the CEO, so the Clean Energy Regulator, was a statutory body set up by the uh, federal government back in 2012. So the Clean Energy Regulator has several charters under its um, requirements as a statutory body. The main one when we're talking here around carbon and carbon credits is they oversee the registration of products and the registration of methodologies. So to basically put it in lay terms, ultimately they're the gatekeeper. They are the ones that keep the robustness and basically let the good players stay within the, within the industry. And I shouldn't say they weed out the um, players that don't do things well, but ultimately that happens over time. So the clean energy regulator is an important body for growers to be aware of because they oversee the industry and regulate how it works. From there, there's the ERF, which is the Emissions Reduction Fund, and that's a voluntary scheme where proponents such as Green Collar and other companies such as that, or also individuals can register projects back through the regulator to access funds from the ERF. So there's two streams to, as you questioned before, is where ultimately the markets and where do they, where are these credits traded? So the regulator, through projects that are registered with the regulator, um, once projects are up and running, they'll issue ACUs or Australian Carbon Credit Units. Now that is a financial product that actually recognises that the grower has sequestered one tonne of carbon dioxide equivalent, whether that be over six months, two years, five years. So an ACU is a financial product that is then actually issued by the regulator that is then basically able to be retained by the person that it's issued to and can be bought and sold back to the federal government through a carbon abatement contract or it can also be sold on what is known as the secondary or the voluntary market where other entities and private organisations will purchase those credits. So ultimately that ACU or that Australian Carbon Credit Unit is the financial product or device that can be either retained by the grower or bought and sold by various methods or uh, ultimate end markets at the end of the day. To double-click on that before we go to Kelly, is uh, last week or the week before the regulator changed the rules or they did something? Because there was about a 30%, I saw on the ABC, drop in the price of carbon, these units, I assume. Yep. Can you explain that? No, so as a, as a grower, suddenly, uh, is this good for me, bad for me? Yep. What happened there? I'll try and give a two-minute snapshot. A lot of the early adopters in the carbon industry, so basically over the previous five, six, seven years across Australia, the the dominant buyer of those carbon credits or those ACUs was the federal government. So basically people took out 10-year carbon abatement contracts and they floated anywhere between $10.50, $12. They eventually now settled around somewhere between $16.50 and $18.00. So all the early adopters signed up to those um, contracts with the government. And what it did was put a base under the industry. People knew if I go into this and my project generates X amount of credits, I get X amount of returns. So in other words, just like growing wheat and you had the luxury of a 10-year forward contract at a price you thought your business could operate on, absolutely no different. It's a um, financial product sold, uh, sold and contracted with the government for a commodity. 
what's happened in the last, everyone says 12 months. In reality, it's the last seven to eight months. In the secondary market, where companies now, ultimately at the end of the day, everyone's saying from COP26 and the way the world has literally changed, some political shifts within places like the United States have meant that everyone in terms of big business and big emitters waiting in the sidelines were seeing to where governments would go from a Western point of view. They've now realised they have to purchase credits to offset emissions that they simply can't remove from their supply chains. And ultimately, most businesses we work with are trying to lessen their carbon footprint, but that's where ACUs come in. They're there to actually offset basic emissions or carbon output that simply can't be removed from a supply chain. And the last thing I'll say on that is that supply of Australian carbon credit units was very small in that secondary market. There was still a sizable amount, but the government had the lion's share. So my personal opinion is that market was being distorted and ACUs um, over the Christmas period, so basically end of December through January, uh, got to within 57 nearly $58 a credit and the government contracts were back around whatever they were initially um, signed up for. So somewhere between $10.50 up to about 18 So that difference between the market of almost three to nearly four times the price, the government's made the decision to release, not in a disorderly fashion, it hasn't happened yet, but they're looking to release those contracted amounts back to the secondary market. So that drop is, um, in grain sense, it's not a carbon term, but for grain growers out there, there's basically a washout fee that's going to be there. So if providers such as Green Collar wish to actually move away from delivering to those contracts, they have, will have to pay a washout fee to the government. So what that did was say you had a contract at $12 for argument's sake, the government would make you pay $12 to walk away from it. So the price then would have to settle on at least $25 to $30 to make it worthwhile for a proponent to walk away. So yeah, to your question, it made a great headline, the sky's falling in, whatnot else. But in reality, um, personally, my opinion is it's brought a bit of balance back to the market and also it's meant that those early adopters are, have potential to be rewarded for their hard work in the early days. And the other one is it will release more credits in the next 6 to 12 to 18 months back to that secondary market. So that will make a lot, it a lot better for those big emitters to actually get a good discipline around coming to that secondary market and purchasing credits. So, look, time will tell, but personally I think, I think it's a good thing. But, yeah, we'll, we'll see how that uh, goes over the next little while. The last one I'll say with that is um, everyone's talking sky falling in. If you went to anyone from a grower to anyone within the industry back in, say, May, June, July last year or even, say, February, so go back 12 months and said the carbon price for Aki's in Australia was going to be $31, everyone would have jumped up and down and said that's nearly 60 70% increase. So even dropping back to $30 in this space 12 months ago, that would have still been a massive increase. So, look... I'm probably speaking way beyond my remit. It makes a great headline to say that this thing by the federal government's um, caused the price to crash. In reality, the market is still in a wonderful space compared to 12 months ago. And look, we're not here to give financial advice to anyone, but that's my my personal take on it. Great. Kelly? I'll involve Kelly. <laughs> so many questions, actually. Um, Malcolm, I guess from, uh, you know, with the farmer hat and the farmer grow group hat on, I'm really interested in sort of deep diving into the, the, the reality of carbon markets for for farmers. So looking at and, and yep. things like the logistics and scale and finding the best um, provider of services around carbon to actually enable farmers to have a successful carbon side business into the future. So, you know, I guess lots of questions, but 
first really would be around that that sense of scale that farmers need to actually you know that that tipping point as to you know how much land on your farm for example would you need to to implement to actually have a worthwhile carbon side business and and how do you come up with a, a land management plan that that would enable it to be a um, you know a worthwhile enterprise yeah that it's a great question and as I mentioned to you both earlier, I've been in the industry for a little while but I've still got my grow hat on. There is a lot of things out there in that carbon space and if it was a massive financial opportunity for a lot of the growers in WA Broadacre space, they could put the time and effort in to go through the multiple carbon providers out there. The main thing I look at for me is there's pros and cons to every single provider, green collar included. Uh, the main one for me is... is Look, I have a vested interest, I have to admit that. We've got a certain model. But the one for me, if I put my grower hat on, is be a little bit wary or ask the questions about a carbon provider that may want upfront costs. If in the fine print it says you've got to put in X amount of money to basically get a, a land management plan or if you need to put in X amount of dollars for us to come out and do this, I would question that because ultimately the success of the project should basically should come down to me the actual carbon provider you're working with either to with to get a project up or to give you advice they should be joined at the hip they should get some reward if you get reward from it i, I don't see any value as a grower myself personally whether it's five grand ten grand thirty grand forking out to get advice on a project to ultimately find you might have a viable project so once again personal opinion but that's that would be my starting point is if i'm talking to someone find out what their economic drivers are for why they would want to talk to you as a landholder. Mm. The second one there is the state government is doing some good thing in this space and it also has a few hits and misses as well. The main one that's just popped up recently is, uh, is a $10, uh, sorry, $10,000 grant to go out and actually get a land management plan up for your property. One downside of that is, is basically I think the close is in early April to actually get that underway. So... Second part of my advice is for people in Broadacre space, do not feel rushed to do anything. Take your time, talk to multiple people. And carbon providers such as myself, ultimately we're no different from an agronomist who's fee-for-service. We're no different to the broker you use to basically do things off-farm. We're no different to your stocky or whatnot else. We're here to provide advice, but the only thing is in the carbon space, it is very hard because... Most people have been running properties for ages, so they're stocky or they're agronomist, whether it's fee-for-service or the guy at the local rural merch store. You've known them for years or someone in your network knows them, can recommend them. That's probably the difficult thing for people on farm when it comes to carbon is it's new. There's quite a few players that have been established for a while, but there's a lot of new people and new businesses rushing into this space. So my thing is, overall, is would be take your time, do your due diligence on people and businesses, and feel comfortable where you're going. So ultimately, be involved, get educated, listen and learn and talk to people, but ultimately don't feel rushed into making decisions is where my, my standpoint as a grower would be at the moment. Right. No, that's, that's certainly interesting. I mean, it's that a lot of us are really daunted as to how to take those those next steps and, you know, the deeper voucher uh, is probably a good good starting point. I guess, you know, that, that advice to just, just hold off and do your education. And, mm. Yeah, it's probably not so much hold off, and it's once again, it's not my commercial background saying mm. move forward, sign up projects. It's more 
don't hold off, but go out there with open eyes, open ears and listen and learn. But at the same time, realise talking to good carbon providers, and there's a number of us out there, not just Green Collar, there are others, you shouldn't be required to sign off on anything when you're starting discussions with people looking for fees up front. Now, I know there'll be some people in the carbon industry that'll be absolutely aghast with me saying that, but ultimately, if a company like Green Collar, we're cash flow positive, I'm rewarding, the company's rewarding on getting projects up, but it makes no difference to me if I have to sit down with someone for six months and help them become educated in the space and ultimately they decide to walk away from us. It doesn't look good on my numbers and whatnot else, but ultimately we as a business, it, it doesn't hurt us in that respect. So I bring that back to the, the point, a carbon provider should be able to have good open conversations with you and not not have that pressure in the background to try and sign you up to something or fees up front is probably what I'd ultimately say to most growers. But don't be afraid to get involved. Don't don't hold back to start talking because, yeah, carbon's a space that's evolving. Uh, rapidly is the wrong word, but it is evolving. So the sooner you actually become involved and start to get your head around it, ultimately, is it's important. These podcasts are, yeah, part of that, part of that step forward for our growers out there. Um, Kelly, can I just interrupt, interrupt for a sec? Sorry, I can't get my words out. Um, it's really interesting. I remember going through... Um, Back in long time ago, I wish it wasn't so long ago when I was a wool grower, um, there was a whole lot of schemes coming out with people to make money. In there's and every farmer knows these, right? You know, there's the emu people and the tree people, and you know, agriculture is awash with this stuff, right? So, is what you're saying like? Is it important for growers not to see this as some sort of magic? That's it's just another commodity. You know, it's not a magic pot of gold that they're sitting on. That suddenly they're going to have all this money flow through carbon credits. Is what you're saying more about? Okay, this is just a normal commodity. You should treat it like everything else. Do your due diligence. There's no magic money here. Is is that sort of what you're saying? Yep. For um, it's a perfect example. It's a good question, David. The people we're working up with in the pastoral estate. It doesn't apply to every single station that's out there, but there are, are some stations where just because of the size of the landmass we're talking in that pastoral estate, the opportunity is large and it, it is real. But back for our growers in Broadacre is basically, look, if anyone's gone to a carbon day where you've had down-to-earth people talking that are realistic, carbon is ultimately going to be, for people in a Broadacre sense, the, the frequent flies at the end of the day, you'll still run your property as you would run it. And if you run it with certain small management changes and have an eye to carbon sequestration, you'll pick up the benefits from a financial sense. And it's exactly the same as frequent flies. You love them, they're great, but you ultimately don't take the plane flight just to get the points. And carbon for not everyone, but for a good, say the average uh, grain grower out there, the carbon will actually be that bonus on the side. And whether that is done purely for that bit on the side or as we talked at the start of the podcast, whether it's talking about having the ability to have market access, whether you are then taking the next step as a grower to having provenance in your products and you're actually going to market yourself and then you can have that conversation around, well, here we are, this is what we're doing to lower our carbon footprint, this is what we're doing to generate credits and there's that story around that. So some people could put the blinkers down and say carbon is too hard and it's, it's difficult but then there'll be some people as growers who'll go, okay, I'll become educated, get my head around this, and then it opens up market access. It allows you to have a story around your property and your produce. So for me, carbon in the broad acre sense is an opportunity. But no, to your thing, David, for the majority, it's not going to be this pot of gold that will replace your primary production. 
And yeah, us as green collar, we see what we do as dovetailing or fitting into your prime focus, which is primary production, whether it's growing crops, growing cattle, growing sheep. That's your main focus. The carbon's important, but it's a nice add-on. So, so Malcolm, I mean, we're talking about benefits here, and obviously there are economic benefits of increasing soil carbon in terms of soil health. Um, but there are other co-benefits of, you know, revegetation systems where we're obviously increasing carbon that's being stored as biomass. And I, I'm thinking here in terms of, you know, natural capital benefits, co-benefits, increase of biodiversity, fauna protection, and, you know, I think there's legislation that's been drafted to, to look at how farmers can financially benefit from better environmental stewardship. I know there's, you know, the Accounting for Nature accounting framework is really focused on, on methods to align and allow farmers to actually capture the change in that biodiversity. So I guess do you have any examples of, how that, that that natural increase in soil carbon is resulting in benefits to biodiversity and, and other co-benefits of natural capital um, and where you see the future yeah. for not just carbon but the benefits of actually doing this carbon business in other ways. So long question. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, Kelly, and I'm mindful when we talk to people either one-on-one -on -one or if we've got five people in the room, there'll be different people in that room at different points of the spectrum. And and what you've hit on there is, is basically the core of what Green Collar does. We've never been purely just about carbon. And it's not there are a lot of companies out there talking about co-benefits, and I use those fingers not to downplay it. It's If people get involved in carbon, it's, it's one of those words around some people use it as a buzzword, but ultimately carbon projects uh, should demonstrate co-benefits, whether that's biodiversity, cultural uh, benefits, whether it's for local traditional owners, if that, that's applicable, mul a multitude of those. So what I was about to say was there are some companies that talk about co-benefits as a buzzword. The core to green collar is we've always been in that biodiversity space and we've always been in that uh, water space. So in other words, with our basically reef credit system up on the Great Barrier Reef and we've now started to progress into getting a genuine, a voluntary plastics credit system up where basically businesses that have uh, basically waste outputs from a plastic point of view are then not only looking for the benefits of recycling but then also monetising that where basically companies will actually buy credits to actually offset their own plastic wastage but also rewards the person ultimately on the ground who's managing that plastic waste so back to your question regarding biodiversity. Yeah, look, depending where you are on the spectrum, some growers, that will be a word they have no concept of and have no time for. There'll be some, and not to put you in the gun, but some such as yourself that are obviously very interested in it and have done a lot of reading. Ultimately, a good carbon project in Broadacre WA, not every single one, it might be just purely soil carbon, but where there's some environmental plannings, other things you do on your property, I wouldn't say by default, but it should have biodiversity benefits. The big then leap is, is how do you actually track, record that and monetise that? That's something we are doing in some projects, not in WA in a broad acre sense, but perfect example, we'll have some clients in the pastoral estate where there are genuine biodiversity benefits for their carbon project and we do record and track that and we do monetise that. And one of the ways we do that is selling in the secondary market. There are buyers of those credits that, well, let's be frank, they will look to pay a higher price for those credits because they do have that backstory around where the where the carbon credits are generated, 
the biodiversity conversation. So a company like Green Collar, we do invest the time not to just generate carbon credits or accus and then just sell them to the highest bidder. Where we can, we do try and marry them up with a purchaser that will actually try and use that backstory to actually help promote within their business to their audience and to their market that they're actually looking to be involved with growers, farmers, pastoralists who basically not only generate carbon but also have that backstory around biodiversity as well. So it's an evolving space. I and no one else at the moment can come out and pick, say, a broadacre grower in Corrigan or someone growing back down the back of Condon up or somewhere like that and say, your property could generate this carbon, but also here's the biodiversity story right for your property. A lot of that comes around with having the conversation with the grower, seeing what opportunities are on ground and also what they're willing to undertake because that's probably a different segue, but no two carbon projects are the same. All properties are different. All growers or landholders are different. And it's, ultimately, it's about find, finding the opportunity that works for a provider like us also works within the framework of the regulator and ultimately delivers benefits that the grower themselves are chasing. Malcolm, I'm just interested, you're talking about these um, co-benefits and obviously they're really important environmental co-benefits, but I'll just talk about my personal experience. In the supermarket, I'm noticing there's a lot of now, especially broadacre vegetables, eggs, those sort of producers are now um, marketing their offset or marketing their ability to reduce carbon. And so there's a, obviously a big backstory behind that in companies like yourselves and others. So, and and different growers, um, probably wheat's probably further down the food chain than than say eggs. So, uh, are you got many clients, or is there interest in the market beyond? Obviously, there's a financial return for sequestration, but there's a marketing or a branding push coming through the food chain to say it's a bit like we did with QA within wheat or within wool or within meat. Is there a trend for carbon to become another QA layer almost? I mean, I don't know if that's the right word, but it's the probably the best analogy I've got. It's a, it's a valid question. Look, I've been involved in the grains industry for a number of years. If anyone sees this podcast and they'll laugh and chuckle because yeah, I've worked with CBH for a number of years and I've been a grower for a number of years. There's, there's all of those QA programs that some have come and gone, some have actually stuck and retained. And this is not just off the top of my head. I get the acronym right, the ISCC with growing canola and WA. If you'd said that to someone growing canola 20 years ago that, yeah, not tick the box exercise, but be involved in this program, you're going to get a $10, $12, $15 a tonne premium, they would have laughed. Mm. That's a perfect real-world example of the end market, in this case being basically buyers within the EU, have actually got their basically accreditation system, growers in WA fit the mould for it, which is great, and... Let's, hold, let's face it, tick a few boxes, follow the rules, and there is a, there is a premium for that. On the flip side, um, where this goes potentially with carbon, in some situations it will be probably, and it's not doomsday, it's just reality, in some situations it may be market access ultimately. So I would hate for the situation where growers can get themselves educated around carbon now over the next six months, two years, whatever their journey may be time-wise, and actually learn that when there's it's voluntary and there's no pressure on them to say, five, ten years down the track, two or three of our main markets for our wheat or our barley actually come to us and demand it. It's, it's, so you can approach it in two ways. There's definite opportunities for it commercially and there's also that um, market access issue as well because you are right. There have been a lot of uh, schemes and whatnot else in the past that have been driven by an individual buyer or there might have been an accreditation that said, hey, mm. look at us with the next year wonderful thing. 
ultimately carbon pervades through all basically all of our commercial interests at the moment, whether it's industrially, whether it's as a consumer ourselves buying things off the shelf. And that's why basically I'm passionate about the industry because um, personally I don't see it as a flash in the pan and it's only going to become entwined further into our life over time. And it's like most things in life, you can either wait to become educated and then just get swallowed up and carried along when it hits you or you can be in front of that proverbial wave, become educated, make some informed decisions gradually over time and be in a much better space of running running your property. That That's how I personally see it. And I, and I think that's the point I was trying to make is that it's interesting. I, I love your frequent flyers um, analogy. I think that's that's perfect. But I think also um, like growers like Kelly and, and all the people at the face, you know, this idea that this may be a market access issue, this may be more a maintenance of um, margins rather than an extra bonus. It might be just required to sell you know, grain into certain markets. And so your your marketer might say, well, you know, is your grain, can you prove, I don't know, carbon offsets or whatever. Yeah. Um, so it's an interesting, I like the idea of just getting ahead in the game because it may be a requirement yep. and in I the think, future. We just don't. Yeah, sorry, mate. I think as everyone's seen in the last two to three years, markets change rapidly and we can have access to markets and and access to markets taken away very quickly from political decisions that are way beyond any of our remits doesn't matter how far up the food chain we are in the industry so yeah just keeping our options open as an industry overall and as individual growers i, I think is massively important so yeah if you had to do that and it took away 50 percent of your focus for the next 12 months to educate yourself about carbon or acquired a lot of money up front i, I would be cautious naturally as a grower but if you can educate yourself over time, and also, look, they'll, they'll hate me for saying this because some of my mates will probably watch this podcast. If you've got agronomists and financial advisors and your accountants, don't be afraid to ask a question of them because they all need to become educated in this space as well. That's, that's probably one of the most difficult things for me as a carbon provider is getting some of these bigger projects up. Is A lot of our process is not educating the station owner or the grower. A lot of the time it's been educating the lawyer the accountant, the financial advisor, which is great. But, yeah, right now if I was a grower, I'd be asking my question to my accountant and say, hey, mate, what, what do you know about carbon? What 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 do you know about accus? And, and ask the question of them. And same as for any of your other providers out there, don't be afraid to ask the question and challenge their beliefs and challenge what they know about the industry as well. Malcolm, I'm really interested in the um, the particular projects that Broadacre producers are doing around Australia at the moment and how they relate to what we could potentially do within within this sort of wheat belt area. You know, what projects are happening that align with the methods of the clean energy regulator at the moment? Um, I, I imagine that the tree revegetation projects and at FACI we do have a project um, where we'll look at developing methodology for saltbush. So, yeah, I guess just throw to you, what sort of projects are out there as an example? Yep, so the main one, there's two main methods, and you mentioned the word methods, which is great. The two main methods I see being applicable to an average broadacre grower would be environmental plantings, which is environmental plantings and also includes mallies, mm-hmm. which is, to David said earlier, might be a dirty word for some people with 20, 30 years history in the industry in broadacre WA, but it's it's not mallee oil plantings or, or mallee plantings as we knew in the past. And the other one is obviously soil carbon. Now, soil carbon is a tricky one in Western Australia, mainly to do around the soil profile itself and also rainfall and the lack thereof or the variability. And it will require some growers to not change what they do overall, but it will require some change in 
their management, their agronomy to actually um, basically sequester carbon. The big one that I'm really happy about is up until recently, the soil carbon method really precluded large growers and it mainly came down to the requirement to sample and how you had to sample over time. There's a recent change. It was in early December 21, so only just a few months ago, the regulator made changes around the methodology for soil carbon. And what that means is you now have the ability to model, measure, model. And what that's doing is it, sh- it won't actually take away the robustness or the basically the validity of a project. You still have to sequester carbon to be a part of it. But what that means is it will lessen the requirement for that rather onerous amount of uh, soil sampling you had to do. And that's why soil carbon up until recently really applied to those permanent pastures, high rainfall and on smaller areas. So there was more soil carbon sequestered. The grower or the landholder could afford to go out and do the required sampling because they had a much higher sequestration of carbon per unit area. So they got their return from it where my personal way of thinking, the vast majority of the broadacre growers in WA when we're talking, let's face it, thousands of hectares on a crop on an individual property basis, the requirement of sampling was probably too high and probably cost prohibitive. So to your question, I think the soil carbon meth now is going to become more relevant for WA broad acre growers just because of the uh, changing to the methodologies has opened it up. That doesn't mean that every single broad acre grower is going to be able to sequester carbon and it's all happy days you will still have to make some management changes that actually ultimately do uh, do attempt to increase the soil carbon. And look, we could spend the next five hours talking about the new soil carbon meth, but I'd direct people to the um, basically the Clean Energy Regulator website. It's a, it's a great website with a lot of information. One word of warning, you can fall down the rabbit hole because there's that many things to look at. You could spend 10 hours there and still walk away not knowing anything but it's worth looking there for the changes to the soil carbon methodology, which have only come out, like I said, at the end of December last year. And for the second one, Malcolm. sorry, environmental planning, I think is important. WA farmers, from my trip, I think I've been to most regions of Australia, are, are fairly ahead of the curve in conservation farming techniques, like min-till was a thing in the mid-80s here. There's always, um, I know with our own family farm, there's always a big deal when you upgrade equipment to improve you know, improve tillage techniques and improve conservation. So could this soil carbon eventually become part of the financial mix in machines? So you've got a grower who is putting in thousands of hectares of grain and needs to upgrade, let's say, their bar to reduce the amount of tillage or to increase the amount of stubble conservation or, or you know, all those normal conservation and min-till techniques. Could the the ability to sequester carbon, that price or that, that those frequent flyers come into the mix in whether to upgrade to the bar or not upgrade to the bar? Do you think that could become in part of the mix? Yeah, absolutely. Over time, I, I do believe that. And, and it's, you've hit the nail on the head. If you actually think, oh, what's progressed or changed in growing a crop in WA, everyone knows no, it's changed, but people probably couldn't individually point to key points along the way. It's, it's been a good progression. And ultimately, I say carbon for, the, for a good portion of the broadacre growers, yeah, it will just be a steady progression over time. So, yeah. That will include equipment, that will include your agronomy, whether it's varieties you grow, how you manage your inputs, what inputs you do use. It, it will be all part of that. And and some people will go on that 
and don't use the word journey lightly, but some people will go on that journey and head down that path. Some may not, ultimately, and then there'll be a lot in the middle that will hold back, be cautious, see what the early adopters do, and if it works over the next five or ten years, they will probably come on board and go, hang on, we've been doing this ever since day dot. And so none of us have a crystal ball to say exactly where this space will land for an individual broadacre grower, but, yeah, carbon will become more intertwined. As I said before, it will become more intertwined in what we do in our day-to-day lives and it will certainly become intertwined on how we run our properties at the end of the day. Our listeners across the rest of Australia, the ones who actually do have soil. <laughs> um, <laughs> Sorry, I was that. <laughs> um, especially, you know, that beautiful chocolatey cake country up in Queensland and that beautiful stuff down south, or southeast that is, you know, is it a different game for them? You know, the, you know, we're talking very West Australian-centric here where we have very ancient friable soils. Over there, they've actually got some deep alluvial-type stuff. Is that a different game for them? Yeah, definitely. Ultimately, soil carbon is driven, increases in it, is driven by the management decisions. But as we all know here in WA, you, you can't change your property. So, yeah, the average um, WA grower with the soils we have here, we make the best of them. But if you do have those deeper, richer soils, as other parts of the country do, and also have the rainfall to match that, rain, rainfall is a key part in um, sequestering soil carbon and increasing it. Yeah, th- those other places do have higher opportunities on a like a per area base, whether it's per hectare, per property, that's just a natural thing. But, yeah, some of the changes to the methodology hopefully will start to open it up where basically it does start to become more relevant for broadacre growers in WA, but it, it does come down to rainfall and it does come down to your soil type and you, you can only work with what you've got in the first place at the end of the day. You know, looking into the future five years down the track where, I mean, I, I know you don't have a crystal ball, Malcolm, but where you think the market will go, What's your prediction? Yeah, it's like anything I think I mentioned earlier. um, No one has a crystal ball to see where these markets land. And they basically could stay exactly where they are, which is highly unlikely. They could go down and ultimately a lot of people in this industry see see them going up. But we, us as Green Collar, we are very cautious with that. We don't like to give the people advice where we believe the markets are going. But I think ultimately... The fact we're in this space, have been here for since 2008 and investing strongly. We've grown from 30 to 100 staff in the last 12 months as a business. I think ultimately people can make their own conclusions of where we see the industry going. And, yeah, we basically proofs in the pudding. Um, we, we see it growing, broadening, maturing, all those beautiful economic terms. And, yeah, we're, 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 we're looking to be a strong part of it, as we have been for the last decade. We're looking to still be a very strong part of the um carbon space and environmental space in, in Australia. And I've got one last one financially, Malcolm. We're starting to get a few clients ring us up and going, how do you budget? We're doing our annual budget review and, you know, this carbon thing and I've just been talking to Malcolm or one of your co- competitors. Um, how do I do I start modelling for this? Do I start, you know, how do I start budgeting for this? Or do I even start budgeting for this or I just – you know, like you said, do I just keep going down this conservation road um, and I might get frequent flyers if I do it right? <laughs> Ultimately, for me personally, it's not a green collar or an industry player. This is me as a landholder. I'd work out what my drivers are for making that decision, whether it's purely commercial, whether you see the agronomic benefits and the frequent flyers of the add-on, 
or whether, and I don't like to use the word big picture, but whether I'm a bigger picture thinker and can see the overall environmental impacts at my property and what I can add to that. So first port of call, I'd look in the mirror and ask myself, what's my drivers to make those decisions? Um, the second one there is, yes, you can start to model in financial outcomes uh, from basically doing soil carbon projects. Whether you put that on your bottom line with the budget you show, your, your base of your accountant and what goes back to the bank manager, that's a decision entirely out for yourself. But even your 11 o'clock at night spreadsheets in the office when you've got a bit of clear thinking space, even if you start toying around at that level, start to have a look and see what that may mean. So ultimately it comes down to from a financial point of view is working out what ACUs or credits your projects may potentially generate and then actually putting some numbers around what an ACU is worth, whether you model it a $10 price or a $20 price or a $50 or a $100 price. And, and it's no different to any other commodity. It ultimately comes down to what you think you can produce off your property as a commodity and then what that may be worth in the market space. So there'll be people who look at this podcast after and say, geez, you missed that point or missed that point. But ultimately, that's, that's what it is, is working out what you can grow. And in this case, sequester in the way of carbon. So what commodity you can produce and then putting a financial dollar on, on that amount. So, yeah, I think that's absolutely core to the decision of all growers should be looking at in this space. Do you encourage all producers to do a carbon audit of how their, how their business is sitting at the moment in terms of emissions and actually understand, understand that as part of this process to buy what you've said now, doing the modelling of the different prices? I think you really... It's not just sequestering carbon, but there's also what changes um, within your enterprise mix, whether it's tier one, two or three, that you can make as a change. It's an absolutely great question because, like I said, it depends where you are on the spectrum. And I don't have the cue cards telling me to say that word. It's just what, how I look at it myself. Depending where you are on the spectrum with carbon and whether you believe, basically believe it or you don't, let, let's, let's cut to the chase on that. Ultimately market access, all those sorts of things is probably going to require all of us that produce commodity to know what our carbon footprint is. Probably the one disappointing thing is there's no real, unless it's changed in the last few months, there's no easy way for a producer to go, hey, there's the calculator on a website. I feed in, this is what I do. These are the inputs I use and it spits out a magic carbon number. That is becoming a lot better if you actually use individual um, providers to actually footprint your business that that can be arrived at relatively easily but it'll be great if there is a simple way for a grower to go in and actually be able to calculate what their carbon footprint is and once again it's, it's purely as much as anything for your own knowledge because you may find excuse me that your soil carbon project for whatever reason generates 500 or a thousand or 1500 accus a year and you think geez that's not much it's you say use a $50 price and you generate a thousand credits, that's 50,000 a year. But then ultimately, if you find your footprint yourself from a carbon perspective and find out you only produce or emit um, 800 uh, carbon equivalents and you go, geez, hang on, I've managed to offset my own footprint. I can use that, whether it's market access, marketing and actually selling my own goods directly. So yeah, to your question, if you, if you can find a way to do it that doesn't involve a lot of cost, Footprinting your own business over the next one, two years, I think would be anyone who's got an interest in this space. I, I see why you, there's no reason why you wouldn't do that. No, as I say, knowledge is king, knowledge is important. And I'd challenge most growers out there to say, hey, would you actually accurately know what your carbon footprint is on an annual basis? So, yeah, we could probably leave the, the podcast there unless you've got any more questions. But yeah, that, 
that idea around knowing and understanding your own business to start with. That's great. That's a really great way to finish, Malcolm. So I think one last question before we go, and it's nothing to do with carbon. I always ask this to everyone. So I know you from our junior footy days when our kids used to play footy together, but I actually want to know when you're not in the ag industry and you're not you know, running around the um, rangelands, et cetera, what does Malcolm do? <laughs> Someone actually asked me something around about way two weeks ago and I went, okay, work and the stuff I do on the sideline on a weekend takes that much time. Then the four kids mean I do that. And then I went, geez, I haven't had a life of my own for 20 years. <laughs> so um, what, what turns my boat is if I can duck away somewhere either by myself or a couple of close mates and go across a line on the south coast somewhere on a beach where there's no one around, I just, yeah, that absolutely turns my crank and yeah i try and do that as often as i can so ultimately yeah if i can sneak away to somewhere quiet and catch a fish that's um my nice little sideline <laughs> right thanks very much malcolm and thanks kelly for co-hosting this with me my first co-hosting podcast and we'll see you all later so thank you as always if you'd like to know more about agramaster farm business management software and services you can find us at www.agrimaster.com.au or find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram. If you like this episode, please share it on social media or directly with a friend and let's make farm business great together.